Welcome to a Nutmeg special podcast. I'm Daniel Gray. We promised you such extras and specials in the first Nutmeg podcast and, like a tanked-up postman, have spectacularly failed to deliver. No matter, though, because we're making up for it here with quality over quantity. Well, quality guests, anyhow. It feels like an apt time to discuss the women's game in Scotland, so here with me are Shelley Kerr and Alan Campbell. Shelley had a glittering career as a player, winning 59 caps for Scotland and playing for Hibs, Kilmarnock, Doncaster Bells and Spartans. She is now, of course, head coach of the national team after successful stints at Arsenal and in charge of Stirling University of the Lowland League, a men's team, among others. Welcome, Shelley. And next to her is Alan Campbell. Alan is a freelance journalist and pretty much the expert on the women's game in Scotland. He's reported on the Sydney and Beijing Olympics and beyond football, covers golf and rugby. Hello, Alan. Hi there. Shelley, we can't avoid the fact that you've just taken over the big job as head coach of Scotland. When I started new jobs, people have always left bits of litter in the drawers. Was, was Anna Signal the same or has she left a nice clean desk for you? Yeah, I can confirm she did leave a bit of litter. Oh, right. Can we have a fir- our first exclusive in this special Nutmeg podcast? What, what kind of litter was it? Not, surely not a banana skin that was fettering away. Oh, just some files that maybe could have been thrown out. But Anything explosive within the files? Absolutely not. <laughs> and has that been usual when you've taken over elsewhere? Do managers leave clean desks? These are the kind of questions that supporters want to know about. Yeah, not normally. It depends on your standards, I guess, in terms of if you're tidy or not. But um, no, we, Anna and I had a really good handover meeting before Anna um, headed off to Finland. And um, it was really good, um, very informative so and really helpful. So it can be like a normal job with a handover meeting and a little set of instructions in a plastic folder and IT logons and things like that. Football's just like any other job, clearly. No, I think this is a, it was a unique occasion. I think um, often in football, you know, it's one manager goes out the door and the other one comes in. So it's been quite unique because um, I officially started way back in the first of June. So very much working under the radar to allow Anna and the players to prepare um, for the Euros. Um, so it was quite unique, but. Um, and saying that, it's given me a, a you know a couple of months to look at the infrastructure and the whole girls and women's performance pathway. How would you sum up in a few words how you're feeling about the job right now? Um, well, lots of people have have asked me about obviously um, being the the national women's team manager and um, you know about the timing and I don't, I don't think the timing's got anything to do with it. It's it's just such an honour. Um, mm. You know, I said that represent a national team as a player is an honour but you know this is one better and do you still get butterflies at this stage in, in a career you know you're meeting up with with the players uh, this coming week in fact as, as we record now do you still get that or once you're a manager does a sense of authority wash over you because it has to I think um, nothing beats playing um, you know coaching is fantastic I have a real passion for coaching and always have done um, but nothing beats playing I still stand at the side of a pitch um, when I'm managing and coaching and I still wish I was on the pitch um, but no I'm really I'm really excited uh, you know when you're a football manager um, you have lots of tasks but the best task is is coaching the team so I can't wait Alan, I feel like when we talk about the women's game, we get bogged down very quickly in strategy, in reputation, in the status of the game. No doubt we'll, we'll come on to that. <clears throat> but I want to get to the bottom first of what makes playing football joyful, whatever gender you are. And we'll come to Shelley on that in a second. But what is behind your love for the women's game and the fact you've written so much about it? Well, I was a typical man who knew nothing about women's football. And about the start of the century, Vera Powell 
took over as the national coach. And if I'm being perfectly, perfectly honest, one of my motivations for interviewing her was probably the fact she was married to the Rangers assistant manager, Bert Van Lingen. <laughs> so this was a nice little in for me, I thought. But uh, However, when I went to, to interview Vera at Hamden, I was blown away by her knowledge. Now, I've, I've worked in football for a long time. I've, I've dealt with some pretty well-known managers, including the most famous in Scotland. And, and I was just astonished at Vera. I mean, literally, I had never had a conversation with anybody who knew so much about football. About the same time, my younger son was playing for a boys' club in Glasgow Green. And in the next pitch was obviously the home pitch of a, of a women's football team. And I was aware of them, but I didn't take much notice because all my concentration as, as, as a father as always is, is on the sun. But uh, the team played in orange, and it transpired much later that this was the famous Glasgow City. And that, that's how I became involved in it. And, and there's, there's also an element of these players commit so much to the game. Their, their, their entire, go through their entire 20s with no social lives. They train harder and more often than any men's team in Scotland below the Premiership, and yet they're getting no media recognition whatsoever. That is appalling. And something we'll certainly come back to, but in this joyful first section of the podcast, anyhow. (laughs) Shelley, I want to take you back to when you first remember kicking a ball around down at the park in the garden, and just your earliest memories of, of knowing that this might be the game for you. Well, sometimes I can't remember what happened yesterday, but I, I can honestly say that I always remember kicking a ball. And I, um, I was the youngest um, of four in the family. I had two older brothers and an older sister. And, um, you know, three, four years old, I, I just started kicking a ball. And, uh, you know, I, I absolutely loved it then, loved it now. It's just been a passion all my life. And, um, you know, I, I speak back then, you know, I, I won't give away my age, but... Um, <laughs> 40-odd years ago, um, I, I just was so inspired about playing football. And, um, you know, the grounding for me was playing alongside my brothers and, and their friends. And um, it, it posed many challenges. Um, there was no formal infrastructure in the women's game back then. I think we had two leagues and there were senior women's teams. So if you were a, a girl and you wanted to play football, you had to play boys' football. Um and I played senior football when I was thirteen years old, so it's been a it's been a long, long journey for me. So to see, you know, where where we've came from and where mm. we are now is fantastic. But but Alan makes a great point. We've still got a long way to go. Mm. So do you feel those pathways are very significantly improved now for a, for a young girl of seven or eight that, that she's got a, a way of playing into the game in more of a structure now? Do you feel that's really well in place? Yeah, I think um, there's been lots of good work done. Um, with the organisation, you know, the Scottish FA and in the regions, we, we've now got soccer centres. You know, the you know their their players, um, Joel Murray Soccer Centre, etc., etc. So that that's fantastic because as a young girl, um, you know, young boys have role models. We need to have female role models as well, and it's fantastic now that you can have young girls that they know that there's a pathway for them. You're one of the few footballers I've ever interviewed, so try and take us into what it's like as a player to, to run out, to hear crowds, to play, get into playing grounds as your career progressed and you went down south and things like that. Try and take us back to those magisterial days. Ah, there's, there's been many of them. Um, I was really fortunate to play a long time. I think I retired um, from international football when I was 39. And my last game um, was against Russia um, away. 
and um, a playoff that we we sadly went out in away goals. It was the first playoff that we lost in um, to go to the Euros, and um, there was about two thousand soldiers there that night. And um, you know, I, w- I was always renowned for being quite a tough tough player and um, I can honestly say that night that I think even I was a bit apprehensive about going out um, I was thinking if we win here tonight we might have a problem <laughs> but um, nothing beats um, the preparation um, and then you know represent your country is just such a massive thing but even club level as well um, you know everyone starts playing football for a reason and that's for the love of the game you know take away money aside um, you know I, I never played for money I think um, when I was at Doncaster, um, you know, before I went to Doncaster, we had to sell, um, you know, you shouldn't mention gambling, but pontoon tickets or you would have a lucky scratch card to raise funds. And thankfully now we're, we're, we're slowly getting there, but I never played for money. I played because I love the game and I'm still the same, no, not any different. So it's the truest and most noble of loves, I suppose, the thing that I love about football most. Oh, and that's how you feel about the women's game very, very clearly. I mean, it is the playing for noble reasons very often. In Scotland, players aren't paid, are they? I don't think it's so much playing for noble reasons, Dan. It's playing because you love it. Yes, and, but, but I mean, and, back to the, the those early reasons that would be called noble now for playing the game for the sake of yeah. the, the Queen's Park ethos, whatever you want to call it, a bit more, which I wish more players were like. I, I must admit, that is one of the things I love about women's football. It... it it, as yet, it lacks the cynicism of men's football. You, do, you don't see players rolling around in the ground when they've been barely touched, and, and nor do you really see much arguing with FRE or disputing decisions, which I absolutely love. Though I have to say, Shelley, I'll be honest here, I think that as a game gets more professional, as more money comes into it, then sadly, I think at the very top level, we'll see these kind of uh, time-wasting and cynical professional tactics coming into the game. Does that worry you? Um, as a coach it does I think you want to play in the right manner um, I think already there's other other countries that are more developed in, in terms of their, their infrastructure, their leagues where they are paying players and you know, it, it, there is an element that is going the same way as the men's game because money can change people. You know, all of a sudden, when someone waves, you know, a ten pound note in front of you, people just take it. They don't ask the reasons why. And you know, I, I, I would my message to anyone in football is always remember how you started playing. It's because you love the game, not for money. I think it's also the coaches, the Shelley. If, if we talk about a country not a million miles away from here that played in the last World Cup in 2015. I mean, their head coach was, I think, quite clearly telling the players to run to the to the corner flag maybe five, ten minutes from the end of the game that they were winning. And so if the coach is telling you to do that, as players, you're more or less obliged to do it. Yeah, I think you have to have... <clears throat> um, obviously, there's there's winning qualities in the very best players and the best coaches. That's and Especially at the top level, everyone wants to win... But within reason, and there is, it's, I would put it down to um, managing the game. It's about game management, but within the laws of the game. Absolutely. Alan, you wrote in a recent um, issue of Nutmeg, more historically, about the women's game in Scotland. I detected a real anger about the way the game was treated here by the authorities, I have to say. Can you sketch out some of those historical moments that you wrote about and how late Scotland was in officially adopting the game. Women were still playing, but, in the, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, I still don't think most people will realise that in, in England, first of all, quickly followed by Scotland, from the 19, early 1920s to the early 1970s, women could not play football 
or football games rather, on senior football grounds in either country. So for 50 years, it was effectively marginalised, always driven underground. The only alternative to play games was in public parks, and even that was difficult because at that time, everybody, so much boys and men's football in those days that it was hard to get a park. So the game was driven underground. Eventually, in the, in the early 1970s, UEFA decided no... They wanted all the national associations to bring women's football under their umbrella. So it went to a vote, and sad to report, the one country in Europe which said, no, we're not having this, is Scotland, the SFA. And it took a number of pioneers, or pioneeresses, Mm. if that's even a word, to try to work so hard to bring the game to where it is now. I mean, Sheila Begbie features in your piece, for instance. Sheila Begbie, Elsie Cook, Elsie Cook was another one. These these were wonderfully dedicated women who, who, as we touched on earlier, just loved football and were not going to be dissuaded by men in blazers at Park Gardens, as it then was, from playing football. And it's worth noting, Dan, that although the, the ban from playing in the grounds came off in the early 1970s, it wasn't until 1998 that the SFA finally took a women's football under its umbrella. It feels quite extraordinary now. I know you're, you can't really say too much on that one, Shelley. <laughs> um, another historical figure in the piece, perhaps a surprise to some, some listeners, Jock Steen. Jock Steen made a phone call to the then secretary of the Scottish Women's Football Association and she was absolutely astounded because it was after Celtic had won the European Cup and the Lisbon Lions already in that short time were absolute legends in Scotland and Steen was already the greatest Scottish manager ever. But he picked up the phone, he contacted the secretary, who is one of the... Shall we say? She likes to talk and is not short of a word or two, but she was absolutely speechless when she realised this was Jock Steen on the other end of the, of the line, because how, how did he get her number for a start? But she took the call and he said, would you like to come to Parkhead and play in an exhibition game before one of our European Cup ties? Of course they did. And uh, it was such a gesture by Steen at the time when other men, man, other male managers and the whole hierarchy were still trying to keep uh, women's football in its little pocket. It's an incredible little caveat that I didn't know about until I read the piece uh, in Nutmeg. Shelley, do you ever feel, or did you feel in your playing career, especially as, as a youngster, the the weight of the, the mud on your boots of all that history, I suppose, that, that went before and all the, the women that had to struggle and weren't allowed to play or you're just too busy enjoying heading the ball out? No, I, I think a bit of both. You know, you were always conscious of it. Um, I think um, Rose Riley was a, a role model um, for, for everyone at that stage because she um, she actually went across to Italy to play and um, you know my, one of my former managers, um, Maggie Wilson and, and Fiona Winchester, around that era... There was lots of women that were fantastic talents. Um, you know, I think Maggie was actually banned from playing, but she went across to Italy to play. So that was the the league um, across Europe that you could go and be a professional. And um, I remember watching a program. It was a documentary on TV about Rose Riley, and um, you know, it was profiling her career over in Italy. And you know, you, I, as a young kid, you used to dream about such things, but. It, it wasn't it wasn't easy to do that at that time. So I guess in some respects you would look at there wasn't a lot of role models out there like there is now. Um, there probably was, but they just weren't in the profile or they weren't in the public eye. Um, but I carried on playing, and, and the first taste, uh, you know, a team football for me was my primary school, and um, I, thankfully down to my art teacher 
who recognised um, that I wasn't too bad at football, saw me in the playground playing and invited me along for a trial. And it was a dream come true. It's probably the equivalent of winning a lottery now. That's how I felt. Mm. You know, my, my parents would... If, if we played a school game and it was raining the night before, I used to cry because I thought the game was going to be off <laughs> because I, I, I wasn't getting the opportunity to play. That's how much it meant to me then. Yeah. What gives you a similar kind of joy now, apart from seeing your, your teams win that you're manager of? I mean, turning around the corner to the park and seeing under nines playing always gets me because I've got a seven-year-old daughter and I think it's great that she can have the same as what I had now. I just butt in there and it's absolutely staggering now to see how many girls are playing football. It, it is, it's astonishing. For somebody of my age, I'm a little bit older than Shelley and probably you as well, it's just, it would be inconceivable to see girls playing football. But now it's almost commonplace. It's fantastic. Mm. I think I think Alan's right. Any time I see a girl with a ball, I just you know it makes me smile. Yeah, I'm, I'm heading down after here to go down to Inverclyde to see our under 15s who have got a training camp right now. And you know to imagine that years ago, it's just unbelievable. So it, it is good. I'm I'm putting a, a positive light on everything. That's the type of person I am. But I'm also a realist, and we we still have a long way to go. As Alan says, you know, if you look at the the time span and the time frame in between, you know, 1998, it's not a long time. Mm. So we've we've come a long way in a short period mm. of time, and I and I think a lot of people forget that. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings us to the more doomy parts on the, on the mm. state of the game, Alan. Do you feel there's been We'll come on to the game itself, but a change in public and press attitudes within that 20 years, or is it still stuck and take them separately if you want public and press? I think, to be fair, there's been a big improvement in the last couple of years. Uh, BBC Scotland, as a public service uh, broadcaster, took very little interest in women's football. Uh, that's changed now, and that's that's great because you know that that's very important. And I'll be fair, you know, the coverage in newspapers are still derisory. But it's getting better all the time. And I think if you look at other countries, we're actually not that dissimilar in terms of media coverage, unfortunately. I mean, they talk about women's sport in general in the UK getting 5% of the, the media coverage. Personally, I think that's generous, as much as 5 Do you think when it finally does catch on in a huge way, you're going to be like one of those people who like to band from the start? And <laughs> <laughs> Shelley, where do you, it's a very big question, but where do you see the Scottish game now, both club and internationally? Well, I think internationally, obviously that was our first finals um, over in Holland. Um, it's been a long time coming because we've, we've, we've been the nearly team, you know, been at playoffs and so on. So the first two performances, I think, um, you know, everyone that's a fan of women's football and especially Scottish women's football would agree that the performances, you know, perhaps were, weren't what they should have been. But the final performance against Spain was fantastic, and it's that's the foundations to build on. Um, you know, now what we want to try and do is it's not just on the success of getting to our finals, because you know UEFA increased the teams for us to get there as well, and that's not me taking anything away from the team and the team behind the team. I think what you have to try and do to generate more profile in the game is to have entertainment, and that is to produce an an entertaining product, and that is your style of play. Um, and we talk about often the ones that are involved in the, the girls' women's game. We talk about inspiring young girls. We want to inspire everyone. We want we want to inspire young boys and men. That's what we want to do. We want to captivate everyone. In terms of 
the national team, our targets are to you know, sustain that success of getting to a finals and repeat that. that that's not going to be easy. In terms of the club, the club situation and our infrastructure, we, we need to make sure that we've got a competitive league. Um, you know, our, our most talented players now um, are going elsewhere because the leagues are professional and they want to be paid. Um, so we need to make sure that we can try and condense the quality um, in our own domestic league. Alan, would you like to say something on the relationship between the men's teams and their sort of affiliates or namesake clubs? Do you think that's a healthy relationship that's, that's going well? It's the only relationship that can drive women's football forward. I'm afraid to have standalone women's clubs like Glasgow City is, is admirable. But if the game is going to grow, and we see this in every other country in Europe, unfortunately, or fortunately, it doesn't matter whether it's fortunate or unfortunate, but nevertheless, the, the women's teams are going to have to be affiliated to men's clubs because men's clubs have the fan base, the fan bases, and, and traditionally they've got all the resources. Uh, women's teams have, have no resources whatsoever, no media profile and, and very small crowds. So Shelley is absolutely right. I, mean, I'm, I'm, I want to say I'm very excited about Shelley taking over. I think, I think we're going to see some really good performances and results over the next couple of years in the build-up to the 2019 World Cup. But she can't do it with one hand tied, her, tied behind her back. And we have to have a strong domestic league. And that means the men's clubs if anybody's listening out there, have to invest properly in their women's football teams and not just do it as a box-ticking exercise, which is what they nearly all are at the moment. And that's, that's exactly how you feel as you, as you put in the piece. So that'll be clearly one of the first things you would change if you were wanting to change and keep moving forward. Are there any other not-quick fixes? None of them ever are. But, but little things that come to you as you're watching the games and you're writing about the games... I don't think so. I don't think the players in Scotland could do any more. Mm. I really don't. I mean, they, the international players are up at seven in the morning or earlier, going to the gym at seven in the morning, so they're up earlier, obviously. They do strengthening conditioning sessions. They go to a day job, nine to five. Then four nights a week, they go to their club training. The players, it's impossible for the players it, to do any more. But for the, the, the environment has yes. to change. The environment has to change to, to make sure they're rewarded properly for, the, for, for all the hard work and commitment and love of the game they have. In terms of what else can be done, which is your question, I think, I honestly think the men's clubs in Scotland, especially Celtic, Aberdeen, Hearts, Hibs, Rangers when they get their finances sorted, these clubs have to make proper commitments to their women's football teams. Strong stuff indeed, and I'm inclined to agree, I have to say. Shelley, is there anything beyond Scotland and this job, maybe talking as a supporter, that you would change about the women's game in Scotland? Would it simply be a bit more money available so that the, the women can not have to work as well? Well, I think there's a bit of both, and um, it has to be on merit, it has to be on success, and sport. You know, it's, success is important. But I think um, in an ideal world, you would want a professional league, absolutely. But, you know, at this moment in time, you know, we're maybe not quite ready for that. Um, I think there's small changes that we could make right now that would make a difference. I've, I've mentioned before that, you know, just now in the women's game in our top league, we um, operate a system where you can make five subs. I would personally change that rule because I think that what it would do is it would help the clubs 
that are out with the top two or three and it would condense the quality. Um, it would help our young players because they would then go to another club where they can get playing time. Maybe a bit controversial, but, but overall the small changes can make a bit of a difference. Um, you know, As a fan, again, you want to see an exciting product. Alan's right. The commitment that the players make you know, in Scottish women's football is phenomenal. Mm. And um, you know they do it because they love the game and they want to improve. But we need resource, and it's not always. You know, I know we're talking about finances here, but we need the right human resource as well. That's important um, because everybody gets caught up in the, the financial side of the game. And you know, if, if we're being honest in terms of football in general, we financially some of the men's clubs aren't in a good financial position either. So. You know, it's getting the balance right, but again, we need to get the right expertise in, the, in women's football. Shelley, as we chatted earlier, your um, obsession, which every manager has to have, with tactics came through. Was that true of your playing career? Were you always interested watching how lines were moving and how runs were being made? Or is it just the, the, the necessity in this, in this job that you do? I think as a player, um, I was a centre-back um, in my career and I always felt that, you know, I never felt I was the most talented player. Um, I felt I could read the game really well and, and that helped me probably play as long as what I did. But from an early age, I really wanted to understand the game of football and, um, you know, I had my, f- my first coaching badge when I was 18 and some of the players that I played alongside would tell you that I was actually coaching on the pitch all the time. Um, so I had a real passion for it. And I, I just, I love watching football. I watch any football, not just women's football, men's football, anything, youth football, anything that's on you know, TV or in a, a local park, I watch it because I want to learn so much about the game. Um, tactically, um, it's important that you're meticulous with your planning, especially at the highest level. And um, sometimes it's through experiments that, you know, you you get better as a coach. But I like to think now that, you know, any team that I work with, and, and more in particular now the national team, that we are meticulous with our planning and, and we leave no stone um, unturned. Um, I, I quite like... Um, it's almost like cat and mouse sometimes when you play against other managers and other teams and... Um, I really, I really love the fact that you can sit and scrutinise a game and, and think about how you're going to improve because that's what it's all about. You know, you never actually get the same performance all the time when you're working with teams. So it's important that you're you're one step ahead of the game and you're proactive. And are these the type of things that genuinely make managers lay awake at night worrying about tactics, formations, and selections? Is that the kind of thing that can lead to to insomnia? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, perhaps. I think um, usually you're in a management position because you're quite strong-willed, let's be honest. But I think tactically, um, I I think that, um, you know, systems are overrated, I think, at times. You know, you can talk about formation, so you talk about 4-3-3, 4-4-2. You know, there's, there's lots of times in the game that they should be interchangeable. And I think it's about educating the players to be able to be adaptable and flexible. You know, a style of play is different. You know, that's what, sh- what y- your DNA is a team. And, you know, moving forward with the national team, um, we- we're going to have a coaching framework and a philosophy to try. And first and foremost, the philosophy will be to try and play attractive football and be adaptable and flexible. But within that, you've got to have a, a 
coaching framework. You know, it's it's not old school anymore. Yeah, you, you have to be. I'm not saying scientific, but you have to you have to have the fine details to you know get the upper hand in your opponents. Are you one of these people with a big philosophy, or is it just management speak that kind of thing? No, I certainly have a philosophy in terms of the way that and the style of play and the way that we want to play. But you know, I I use a framework with the word time, um, and it's to train, implement, measure, and entertain, and that that will be our mantra moving forward. And you can't just get there by default. You know, one of the phrases that we'll use is the ball doesn't go in the net by chance. You have to have a plan A, a B, C. You can't just have one one tactic. You have to have more than one. And that's what we're going to focus on moving forward as you know, our, our coaching team and our support staff to try and educate the players in many different ways to win games. And it's about getting the balance. You know, we've got a quite a predominantly young team. We've got a lot of players coming in now who haven't had a lot of international experience. So it's about finding the balance between winning and developing those players and, and developing the team. I think exciting times ahead, it's fair to say. Alan, before we finish up, why should people get out more to women's games on a Sunday? Why should they get out of the route of going? I find this attitude a lot is, is that, oh, I'd like to go, I'd like to go along. but mm. And there aren't really that many excuses. But what's on offer when you go and watch women's football? Well, I mean, the, the onus, as Shelley said, is on, is on the teams, first of all, to be, to, to be entertaining. You know, there's no onus or duty on anybody to go and watch a women's football match, just as there's no onus or duty on anybody to watch a men's football match. You go because it's a good experience and you're enjoying, you're enjoying watching the football. So it's up to the clubs themselves to make it attractive. And do you, do you ever feel that frustration, though, that I do on a Saturday and talking to people that just don't, don't go at all? Is that, do you have those arguments? Still? You know, your role is almost ambassadorial in some ways, with some certain types of fella, anyway. No, I don't. I, my, my role is not ambassadorial. No. I, I don't see my role being that way at all. My role is to comment on the game, uh, critically, I hope, as, 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 and if by my efforts more people become aware of women's football, then, then that, that's my job. But, but I'm not an ambassador at all. An advocate and a supporter, <laughs> which, which every, every type of game. Well, thanks ever so much to you both for coming along. We wish you so much luck in the job and can't wait to come and watch Scotland and might even be able to support them as an Englishman and it'll be a lovely moment indeed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's all about all we've got time for. Um, look out for more of these specials now that I'm just about unemployed. And of course, the second regular Nutmeg podcast. You can support the magazine by buying or subscribing at www.nutmegmagazine.co.uk. I've been Daniel Gray. Thanks for sticking with us. Goodbye.